This is Bob Ford of History, Mystery, and Lore, where we travel the Midwest, going to museums and historic sites, talking to experts and old friends who've got great stories to tell. Today, I'm headed to Topeka, Kansas, to the Combat Air Museum. But before I get there, let me give you a little history on the stories we will be talking about. Air combat has been an important factor in warfare since the early 1900s. In this episode, we will be discussing the influence aviation had on specific wars and battles. This will include World War I, the Battle of Britain, World War II, and the part the Tuskegee Airmen played in combat and society, along with the monumental use of helicopters in Vietnam. The Combat Air Museum has flying replicas associated with all these topics and much, much more. This professionally laid out museum is a destination for aviators, history buffs, and people of all ages who just like climbing around the real thing and learning more. So buckle up, let's take off. This is Bob Ford of History, Mystery, and Lore. As promised, today I'm just south of Topeka, Kansas at the Combat Air Museum with my friends Kevin Durlow and Gene Howarder. Well, thank you both for doing this. Well, as you know, I've given a brief history of the museum, but being here, you are loaded with aircraft of all types, displays, artifacts, I really barely know where to start, but but before we get into the good stories associated with all these planes, give me the brief history as you see it. And what what was the genesis for this museum? Well, actually, let me say this: it just uh, became a reality to me just recently, uh, starting that the Combat Air Museum has been here at what called Forbes Field, Topeka, Kansas, Forbes Army Air Base, etc. Now longer than the Air Force was here. And uh, let's just say that the, uh, I think Kevin would agree, the base opened in about 1942, and the base actually closed in 73, 1973. And if you total up all those years, figuring that the Combat Air Museum actually opened in about or chartered in around 1975-76 era, and it's now 2022, soon to be 23. That totals up to more years. We've been here like 45, 46 years, and uh, so we've been here a long time. What happened back in the beginning, along with the uh, what I just mentioned, was the base closed in 1973, and there was a, a local individual here in town who was an aviation buff. And uh, he was a flyer, and he uh, flew with the Marines. And and uh, as aviation goes, he had a lot of stories to tell. But uh, the uh, Bob Schneider was, the I would say, the original person who his idea was to start the Combat Air Museum. And... Uh, he happened to have a good friend in California or a good acquaintance in the aviation business by the name of David Talashay. 
Now, if you've ever heard of the 192nd Aerospace restaurants around the country, David owned the uh, uh, those restaurants, and uh, he was actually the son-in-law of Conrad Hilton. And David had more World War One and Two and so on aircraft than probably anybody in the world. And his idea was that with with the restaurant, he would invest the money uh, that was made back into old airplanes with the intent that they would raise in, in value and he could make, it was a good investment and a way to make money. So he, I, I was always told that he had about 105 airplanes. Wow. I don't know exactly how many he had, but he did have a lot. Now, a number of these planes were flyable and some of them were to be restored. And uh, this was called, his, his uh, company was called, for aircraft was called Military Aircraft Restoration Corporation, and they were at Chino in California. Well, anyway, our local uh, contact here, Mr. Bob Schneider, uh, who had graduated in high school in 1959 at Topeka High and was an aviation buff, uh, knew David, and he uh, it was his idea to talk with David and see if he would ever have any intention of bringing some airplanes to uh, Topeka, Kansas, and of course Bob was just assuming that the that he could get some hangars at Forbes bids they've closed up, and we could had just recently closed, and we could start a museum out here. So what happened to get that going was that uh, Bob called uh, his first contact, as I understand it, was uh, a guy by the name of Gene Smith, who was a reporter for the Capital Journal, very well known aviation reporter. Who and he had his own little airplane he flew, and he was kind of a aviation buff himself. And anyway, he got Gene to write an article in the newspaper saying, "Would anybody interested in having a uh, air museum in Topeka come down to uh, Washburn University and meet in such and such a room on such and such a night in the middle of the cold winter?" and thinking that you know there might be a dozen or two people show up down there. As I've always said, I went to the meeting, I read it in the paper, and I would guess that there were over 100, maybe 150 people who showed up for that uh, because they had an interest in a museum at Topeka, Kansas here at Forbes Field. So that was the beginning of the organization. They got to meeting and they talked about all the things they wanted to do. They established an original board of directors and then they took memberships if people wanted to join. And um, we had a shirt. We made shirts and hats and everything. And we chartered under the name of the uh, uh, yesterday's Air Force, Kansas Wing, because the organization in California was chartered as the California Wing of yesterday's Air Force. So we became known as the Kansas Wing of yesterday's Air Force. And the deal was made, struck with David. First of all, we had to get together with the airport authority here at uh, uh, Forbes. Forbes Field, that had just that which had just been, uh, you know, available, mm -hmm. uh, a brand new organization, and to get some hangers. And uh, it was relatively easier than I even could imagine today <laughs> because of the fact that you got all these hangers out here. And the Metropolitan Peak Airport Authority 
has charge of them, what are they going to do with them? Right. Well, there were some of them that were filled with uh, grain where you had a <laughs> big weed harvest, and you'd move in, and one of the hangars up north had uh, weed all over the floor and everything, and, and the birds flying in, and it was a mess. And they originally wanted to give us one of the hangers with grain, and we got another hanger up there. And uh, finally, eventually, uh, we negotiated for the two hangers that we're in today. What were some of the first pieces that came in? What were some of the first aircraft that uh, you you brought to, into the collection? The, the very first airplane that came into the collection was David agreed to bring a B-24 bomber. And that B-24 bomber Liberator? The Liberator was... Mm -hmm. Uh, called Kilroy, or not Kilroy, it was uh, called... Uh, Delectable Doris. Delectable Doris, yeah, there we go. And, of course, all of a sudden, now all these guys that were at that meeting that night and had joined up and everything, they they came out here and you had a lot of guys who... And it flew in, right? It did fly uh, in. And we had a lot of guys that thought that the... Uh, who thought they were A&Ps and some that were A&Ps and some who wanted to be A&Ps and aircraft mechanics, uh, would-bes crawling all over the plane and working on them. So they had to establish uh, something go uh, that was going on that was correct. But for people that don't know, the B-24 bomber was a World War II bomber right. that uh, really helped win the war. And um, Four engines, two tails, and actually when this airfield was established in '42. It began as a B-24 training base. There you go. And it uh, it flew mostly in Europe, or did... Uh... Uh, both, both theaters, Europe, Europe and Asia. Okay. Yeah. I think the uh, important thing was is that uh, this organization began, uh, Mr. Schneider's idea and the board of directors' idea was that we were going to be a flying museum back in mm -hmm. 1973, uh and after 70, uh, 75, 76, 78, a lot of museums flew airplanes. That was uh, uh, that was the thing that they established for to fly airplanes. And they didn't just have uh, planes in, stuck in hangars and they didn't fly them. So uh, this B-24 was going to fly. And, man, we had people that uh, one guy who... He brought polish, and he polished the plane out and got some guys to do it. They recovered all the seats in the uh, B-24. I remember the most interesting thing was replacing the bladder fuel cells. Uh, and, but we had guys that were, at that time, who had been around in World War II and knew what they were doing, and it was very fascinating to see them take off panels on a B-24 and the smallest of holes you could ever imagine, some guy crawls up in there and manages to get a bladder ready. You can take it out and repair it and put it back in so it's a fly. So uh, let me just add to that where I'm here So before I forget. So one of the first things they did in the very beginning, uh, we had other airplanes here by that time, but the very first thing happened is we worked a deal. Uh, Talashe worked a deal, and uh, Snyder and the guys were... Uh, Universal Studios and CBS wanted to film the movie Young Joe, if you've ever seen the movie Young Joe. So they uh, got the B-24 all fired up and all ready to go to California to uh, film to do filming for this movie Young Joe, Joe Kennedy, 
Mm. If everybody remembers who uh, John Kennedy's brother, the BT one hundred and nine. Yeah, the one that the old man, uh, the uh, Kennedy father, was really right. His he was the one that was grooming for president of the United States, and of course he was in a, a aircraft, the B twenty four, that exploded. They were in Europe when they were trying to hit a facility that really never did exist, and it was a uh, people just have to read up on that if they want to know more. So they took this B-24 out, and they actually uh, fitted uh, machine guns in it and went out over the ocean and fired blanks, I understand, and uh, and CBS and Universal Studios both uh, stocked up a lot of uh, B-24 action, knowing they may never get another B-24 to do this that they put in their archives for later movies. Well, and, and so Joe served in the European theater while John was in the Pacific theater. Yeah. Now, you were asking about stories, and, and let me not pass this one up while we're here. Good. might be a little bit in advance, but uh, guys were awfully exuberant back in those days that came out, and I told you there was guys who were who were the real deal, and there was guys who wanted to be. That didn't mean they weren't nice guys, but they could get themselves in trouble in a hurry. But this one didn't have anything to do with our guys. So most exciting day in our life was when they were fueling this B-24 up to fly it to California. And uh, as soon as I got off work, uh, I headed out here, and there was all kinds of calamity going on, and I couldn't figure out what in the world's going on. This plane's supposed to leave by 4 or 5 o'clock. Turns out that the FBO on the base, uh, you know, this plane would take, uh, Kevin would know what aviation fuel, you know, regular aviation fuel. And, Gasoline. Uh, yeah. And these young guys who were putting the fuel, who were doing the fuel, came down with a fuel truck and they put JP-4 jet fuel in this B-24. Well, a B-24 with piston engines isn't going to fly on jet fuel. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, they had to take all this, they had to empty, pump all of this fuel back out of this plane and clean it and go back and put regular uh, gasoline in the airplane to get it to fly. That's just, you know, some a little kind of a little story of something what can go wrong at a museum like this. So... What can go wrong will go wrong. <laughs> yeah, right. Anyway, what happened there after that, uh, What besides that, was that, that we started bringing in aircraft. Uh, they brought in a, a um, uh, they had a, we had a couple B-25s. They brought in some B-25s. Uh, we had a, uh, actually a BT-13, but some of the derelict planes they brought in was like an ME-109, and uh, the exciting part of it was was that David actually brought in his P-51 mm -hmm. flyable, a P-40, who uh, the only person he would let fly it was an uh, astronaut guy from Topeka. Uh, I think that was that his name, Joe Engel or somebody. The astronaut He's actually from the west of Topeka. But yeah. yeah, Joe Engel, was, they'd, he'd let him fly the P-40, but nobody else. You've got quite a collection of <coughs> World War One. Airplanes are any of those flyable? Well, they have been. Let Kevin tell you about those. <clears throat> so they're they're all replicas, and uh, they're all airplanes. You can buy plans or kits and build them in your garage with a pop rivet gun and put a Volkswagen engine in the front, and off you go. Wow. So yeah, they're, they're about eighty percent scale replicas. That's but 
an 80% scale World War I airplane is so close to the full-size airplane, it really gives you an appreciation of what it was like back then and how things have changed up to today. Well, there were some great movies made of uh, aces in World War One. Yeah. Well, just, you know, 1917, this last movie that came out was, I mean, some riveting, Indeed. you know, air 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 filming was going on in that movie. But uh, Well, I might add to that that our deputy chairman here, Mr. Dave Murray, he is a World War One buff. Mm-hmm. And he, another one of our board members, uh, uh, for a number of years, spent couple weeks every summer in France and and uh, overseas visiting World War One battle sites and stuff and uh, gathering a lot of information on, you know, like would be World War One planes and stories and so on. And uh, so and we've actually got uh, as we have our when we have our membership meeting coming up uh, on the 12th of December here. We're going to be actually uh, going into a beautiful story about a World War One airplane where two guys from Wichita were killed flying in World War Two, and uh, the story about that. So, well, of course, the World War One National Museum is in Kansas City, which is a fantastic museum, and I have done a podcast on General John J. Pershing yeah. out of Laclede, Missouri. So. Anybody following the podcast has heard some yeah. uh, good World War One stories. Well, I'll uh, another. You know, you're interested in the stories and so on. But we wound up with we some of the airplanes we were going to restore here. Our our original uh, contract uh, or uh, charter with David Talashay, what it basically said was that he would bring in these planes from California and put them in our museum where we could show them and, you know, we were in charge of them doing what we needed to do with them. And he even paid for and had one of his mechanics who was on our staff here who worked on them. And uh, so they they brought in a, a, B-20, uh, a, a B-25, they're the original B-26 World War. It was a, had Army Air Corps markings on it. It was on the Tundra up in British Columbia, and they'd hauled it out of there, and it went to California, and it came here, and they were going to have us restore it. The idea was that we were supposed to do restoration work on on these, on the unflyable airplanes, put them back in flying condition and so on, and uh, unfortunately, the uh, contract read that whatever the market value of the airplanes were, was uh, as it increased, we were supposed to do that much restoration. Well, it became obvious we weren't able to do that, and so we uh, we had to break that contract with Talashay. But an- another little story, you want to hear about a story that, that there was always exciting times. There's always going to be an airplane fly in here. There's always going to come at the same at a certain time, and it never did come within. It's always four or five or six or eight hours or a day late, people hanging around waiting. Well, Mr. Schneider went to California, and he decided he was going to bring, David was going to let him bring his Fiesler Storch back out to Topeka, and it was flyable, and he was flying over the Rocky Mountains, and I've heard all the stories that out in California, they needed spark plugs, so he put Volkswagen spark plugs in the plane. <laughs> and he started over the Rockies, and it wouldn't maintain. The engine wasn't obviously working right, and he had to do a hard landing somewhere up in the mountains and 
kind of uh, tore up the bottom of the airplane and everything, and then we wound up bringing that airplane on into the museum, trucked it in here, and instead of having a flyable, we had to, had to have a restoration job come out of it. But, uh, uh, yeah, there's a, there was always a lot of exciting times around here back during the flying times, and uh, uh, we flew for many years, and uh, we're now a, not a flying museum any longer, and we could talk about that later if you want to. But anyway, we had a lot of we had a lot of airplanes that uh, around here. They, I was, I was just saying that we, David brought in a P fifty one, a P forty. We even had a flyable P thirty eight here mm -hmm. that David had. It's a famous airplane. Yeah, and uh, he uh, later on in the organization. Uh, he had brought in a German Heichel HE-111 bomber and uh, that was flyable. And uh, my gosh, it was just, you know, fascinating. Almost had to pinch yourself that you could uh, see these airplanes. And uh, Any Mishubitsis? <laughs> I don't know. None of, none of, those are so rare. Sadly, yeah. no. What was that hot one that he had, a bear cat? Uh, that, Bearcat, it was a British mosquito, De Havilland mosquito. Oh, yeah, the British De Havilland mosquito bomber he brought in was in pristine condition. We had it here. Uh, he actually, his, his counterpart in England was a guy by the name of Doug Arnold. And Doug Arnold had a lot of airplanes like David did. Well, he wound up selling the, uh, the, uh, De Havilland bomber to, uh, Doug Arnold that went to England, and I thought that was the end of it. And someday I, I'm picking up an Air Classic and magazine and realized that Doug Arnold had sold that uh, aircraft back to somebody in the United States, and it was in Gander, Newfoundland. And the next thing I knew, it wound up in the United States, the Museum of the Air Force National Museum in uh, Dayton, Ohio. Mm -hmm. And uh, that it's there today, and that's the plane that we had here at this museum. We've had a lot of exciting airplanes over over all the years here at the Combat Air Museum. And uh, it's amazing there is some sort of exchange where you negotiate prices and increasing prices for certain airplanes. And but I guess it's uh, kind of like a piece of art. Yeah, the or vintage cars. Well, indeed, there too. it's a better comparison. Well, I think another interesting story when, of course, uh, I was a school teacher. I I worked for Boeing for six years, and, and I did work around B-52s and Vertol helicopters and did a lot of sheet metal work and stuff. But the interesting thing about being, being around the museum was uh, just, you know, getting to see all these airplanes that come in and... Uh, you know, I didn't have a lot of expertise in airplanes and many, I was never a mechanic, but we had guys who were mechanics and we had guys who were sheet metal people. And then we had guys that could just do various things on airplanes. Unfortunately, many of these people have died over the years and, and we just don't have as many people as we used to. And it's hard to find people. And, well, other than just the airplanes, you've got displays of all sorts of things that support the airplanes. Tell me about some of those other other displays that uh, are unique. Well, <clears throat> some of the displays cover aircraft engines, the evolution of flight, um, the four forces of flight. And we've also got a number of displays here that highlight local uh, 
pilots and aviators. People have done remarkable things over the years. We've got a display about the Tuskegee Airmen that focuses on the Kansans and, and folks in Missouri who were members of the Tuskegee Airmen and, and what they went on to do uh, after lives. It's a fascinating display. Well, we the, the first display that we actually uh, built in the museum originally was our POW room downstairs. And uh, when they were tearing down the World War II barracks and stuff, uh, the guy who was tearing them down, the people in Topeka would be with, Mr. Champney, I think he's passed away now, but he he let us have all the lumber out of the barracks we needed to fix the uh, POW room up and all the wood on the walls and stuff are from the uh, World War II era. Was there a POW camp in this area? No, but we had five people in our organization, rather prominent people in our organization, who were former POWs. Uh, many people in town here would remember Dr. Carl Filer. And he was kind of head of POWs. And uh, Joe Higgins was a member of our organization who flew, uh, or excuse me, who was a POW in a German concentration camp. Dr. Feiler was on his 25th mission flying over Germany. And he had dropped his bombs, turned around, and heading back to England. And all he had to do was get home, and then he was going to be home <laughs> for good, sent back after 25 missions. That was his, uh, the, the criteria he had to hit. And he got shot down on the way. He dropped wow. his bombs on target, turned, and got shot down and spent the rest of the war in a POW camp, as well as Joe Higgins, who was in our, uh, one of our good members, was in his POW camp. And uh, very, very interested in hearing about him. Anyway, when you when we built the POW room, these guys were always going to build it, and they never did. And at the time, I'd taken on the task as curator here, and I said, heck, I'm going to build that. And the former uh, chairman here at the Combat Air Museum, uh, a guy by the name of Irvin Surrett, he, he said, look, my daughter's got a copy of the book, The Great Escape. I'm going to bring it in and let you look at it. And I brought it in, and we looked at The Great Escape, and we looked at the POW room in there which was supposedly a real picture and everything. And so we just built the uh, POW room out, out of the uh, one that we saw in the Great Escape mm -hmm. book, uh, novel book that they put out. And so what was interesting is you get people that come in the museum at that time, back in the early years, and they'd say, well, that doesn't look like the POW room I was in. Another guy would say, well, it looks exactly like the one I was in. <laughs> and uh, they were... Uh, you know, there was probably not very many concentration camps were the same. Of course, they were all over in German and Poland and everywhere else. But the interesting thing about Carl Feiler was, is after he bailed out and landed, uh, the a bunch of farmers came out to uh, hear him tell it with pitchforks and everything else and captured him. And then they turned him over to the uh, German uh, ground troops when they came. And they stripped him down to his... Uh, underwear and stuff to take him into the camp and somehow his guard at the German camp wound up with uh, Carl's coat his bomber jacket that he had on he was wearing I thought you were going to say underwear <laughs> <laughs> well probably but anyway he uh they get rid they would uh, they get as I understand it they get red cross rations 
and they would have Lucky Strikes and Chesterfields and little packs of cigarettes in it. Well, Carl didn't smoke, and he saved all his up. And he bought his uh, coat back from his guard for 200 cigarettes. And uh, Carl has donated that jacket to us, and we've got it in the display case down there. And he personally made the sign on there that said he got this back for 200 cigarettes. And he eventually got... Uh, when the war was over and the Russians were coming, these Germans were uh, very uh, frightful of the uh, Russians, and they didn't want to be captured by them, and they were cleaning the camp out. As Carl Feiler told me, was that uh, that the guards in his camp treated them, treated them really well. I mean, they weren't badly treated, uh, the POWs, and so when the Russians were coming and the Germans were giving up the camp, his guard turned around and gave Carl his rifle, Carl said, and he had told Carl, he said, I just would hope you treat me as well as I've treated you. Mm -hmm. And he said, that's, I, that's, that's the way it'll go down. And Carl said, just one thing, I want those armbands off your show, off your coat. And, Have you and got those down there too? We had them down there, yes. <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, you know, there's, so there is a lot of interesting, all of the, uh, the stove, the uh, stuff that's in the uh, in was was stuff like they made these these POWs had to make their own cups out of cans and everything, and they kept telling me uh, Joe Higgins in particular. He said, "You can't put enough uh, can lids over the knot holes in that room to ever make it look like ours. We didn't throw any can lids away. We always nailed them or got to put them over the." Uh, Knot holes and our warmth, our, I guess, to help keep the wind out and so on. And he said that there would be uh, wasn't unusual for two to three guys to sleep in one bunk bed, like there'd be a bunk bed down below and there and the top part, and there could be two guys in the bottom, two in the top, or mm -hmm. even in some bunk beds, three guys. He said they'd take turns who got the middle, who could keep the warmest, and uh, so there was <laughs> quite a story of survival, but. Uh, my favorite story from Carl was uh, because he got shot down on what would have been his 25th mission when he made it back to the U.S., he was denied a number of veterans' benefits because he didn't complete a combat tour through no fault of his own. And that led him to become quite an advocate for veterans' rights and benefits. And, and what he learned to fight for his own case, he immediately turned around and helped other veterans in the, that were in the same boat and uh, became a real advocate for veterans. Well, that's a crazy rule. You were a POW, but didn't, uh, oh my gosh. Yes, indeed. Cat's 22. Okay. Well, let's go back. Tell me about the name change when you separated from the yesterday group to the group you have today. Well, as I said earlier, the com, uh, the uh, we were originally yesterday's Air Force, Kansas Wing, and uh, because of our... Uh, contract that we had with Mr. Talashe, and it was very fair about it. I mean, I, I, I always try to make it clear to people that uh, he, he never gave us any problem with anything we ever did because we had a contract where we were supposed to do a certain amount of restoration uh, toward the aircraft that he brought in as, as the market value of the planes went up. We were supposed to equal that. I know that's maybe kind of hard to understand, but that's what it is in a nutshell. Well, it became very obvious that as we lost members and 
the enthusiasm on a lot of these guys who were just, uh, you know, uh, people came in for a while and quit, and and we didn't have near as many members and as as we used to, but we couldn't fulfill that contract. And uh, in fact, I was on the board of directors at that time, and we sat down and we said uh, it was really a hard thing to do, but we said we're just going to have to contact. Uh, David Talashay and tell him that we we can't fulfill our end of the contract, and he's he, he, big under, of, he understood. He he did. He understood. In fact, even after that, he brought airplanes in. He mm -hmm. still and and left airplanes here, and uh, but the uh, thing was, so we uh, we redid our uh, our our uh, charter. We had a charter that one of our board members. Uh, had put together when he was in law school. Very good charter. He did a great job on writing it. And we we got that changed around and switched our name to the uh, Combat Air Museum after meeting at Washburn and uh, coming, considering a lot of name changes and so on, we landed on the Combat Air Museum. Well, what what to me, what makes you different is your restoration ability. And a lot of people would look to that because that was beyond what they could do. So yeah. in bringing it here, that's, you were a magnet because of that. Yeah. Well, as Kevin can tell you, he's an A&P and mechanic, and a lot of us around here are, you know. It's no small job to restore an airplane, and you got to, if you're going to put it back into flying condition, you got there's a lot of rules and regulations you got to follow. And when you are talking about guys that just walk in off the street, a lot of times they don't understand those rules and regulations and uh, uh, just can be as simple. I've seen guys, when you're working on aluminum and you're cleaning it, uh, you wouldn't ever use a steel wire brush. I mean, on aluminum, it's going to corrode, right? And I mean, I, I, I saw that happen. That happened one time, that's something I can remember, people cleaning on an airplane with wire brushes. <laughs> well, an interesting parallel, and I guess here in Topeka, is I was told by Mike at the Harley-Davidson de uh, dealership, which is also the Evil Knievel Museum, that's what they do. They, do re they restore Harley-Davidson's. They've got motorcycles being sent to them from around the world. So they're known for that. You're known for this. And I'm going, what an interesting... Uh, yeah. A tribute to Topeka. Yeah. Well, something we haven't touched on is the fact that this museum flew aircraft, operated aircraft for quite some time until the mid-90s, and that meant operating, making, satisfying or meeting Federal Aviation Administration requirements, and that meant licensed pilots, licensed mechanics. The folks Gene talked about who had no aircraft maintenance experience could work under supervision, but the mechanic with the license of the guy who'd write his name in the logbook, describe the work, Date it. So if something interesting happened, the FAA would have someone to come talk to and mm -hmm. maybe beyond that. So this museum operated aircraft and made the FAA happy during those years. Was the, Forbes Field ever a school? There was a school across the highway from the Air Force Base, but that was that school was designed to teach uh, airmen who were on the who were transitioning from the military. That was like a small trade school where they could learn things to do once they left the Air Force. It has some skills like when they went home, they could make a living with. Now, one in World War II, there was another airfield just south of Salina. What 
What was that airfield about? It was also a bomber training base. It was started off as a Smoky Hill Army Air Force Base, later named Schilling Air Force Base. But that was a, a bomber training base. And like Forbes Air Force Base, transitioned into a bomber base with the Cold War. The, the Korea was over. They closed a lot of bases, including Forbes. But then almost as quickly, had to reopen them and lengthen the runway. Salina had the longest runway in Kansas. Forbes was right behind them because they got the first practical swept-wing jet bomber in the Air Force, the B-47. Its six engines were not very powerful, so it needed a 13,000-foot-long runway to safely operate. Salina and Forbes got longer runways, and uh, some time ago, Salina, after they were deactivated, they recently shortened their runway to make it less expensive to maintain. Here at Forbes, just a couple years ago, they rebuilt the long runway here, and to continue to serve a wide range of Department of Defense aircraft. The Kansas Air National Guard Boeing KC-135 refueling tankers are based here, among others. But that's why we have the long runway here, because of the, the Cold War and the threat of, of uh, the Soviets coming. There's We have a book in our gift shop, and I was reading it, and uh, one of the uh, high-ranking officers that wrote that book made the comment that kind of struck me because I had never heard that before, that actually in 1962, he said that Forbes Field was the largest air base in the United States. And now, when you As stop, far as number of people assigned, not, not yeah. in square miles or anything. When you stop and think that we had here at this base, as I understand, we had SAC, we had TAC, we had the Military Airlift Command, and uh, then we had the missile all the missile stuff here, this base. So there there were, and then across the road over here, they have all the warehouses and everything else. So uh, uh, Quite a facility. Going back to what Kevin was saying, I was just, an interesting thing on that is, is that uh, everybody's heard of SAC, the uh, Strategic, Strategic Air, Air Command, Command, which we were building B-52 bombers for them in Wichita, the Curtis LeMay was at uh, Offutt in Nebraska, and he was the head of SAC. And the SAC bases were Forbes, McConnell in Wichita, and Schilling in Salina were all SAC bases. And uh, I, I have no proof of this. I've just always imagined it because they were SAC bases. That's how they got long runways and got really good facilities that the government had, had put in here. So... Um, yeah, Forbes, Forbes was a uh, quite an air base. It, How many people were stationed here? Do you think at the height? Well, I don't know. Kevin would have a better idea. I'm trying to. I I would have to do a little reading to tell you the numbers. But as he said, in 1962, there were there were two bomb wings here, a reconnaissance or a spy plane wing, the missile wing, and then all the support folks plus the folks at the depot across the street. So I can understand. This may have had been the largest number of people assigned to a single base for a period of time. Several thousand. Yes. Well, an interesting thing would be that uh, in, in all the time I've been here, that I, I would say that conservatively there's been over 100 people that I've talked to myself that came in, and they'll say, the young lady or young guy will say, is the hospital still here? And I'd say, yeah, it's right around the corner over there. It's still there, the state. Well, I was born in that hospital. I was born at Forbes Field. Now, we had an interesting lady came in the other day, and she said, I was born at Forbes, 
Air Force Base. And I said, yeah, I suppose over at the hospital. She said, no, in a Quonset hunt. And I said, now, that's new to me. I've never heard that they gave, gave uh, <laughs> birth to babies in these Quonset huts out here. So I did a little bit of checking, and all of a sudden I had numerous people that said, yep, they said they had uh, a facility in Quonset hut up uh, on the north of the field and and uh, before they had the hospital and that uh, babies were born out at Forbes Field. But, you know, this base was a regular little town. It have, uh, had a swimming pool. It had both uh, churches, Catholic church and Protestant churches. It had... Uh, of course, it had, had PX stores. It had your officers' quarters and so on. And they, movie theaters. Yeah, they just they, there was it was quite an operation out here at Forbes, and uh, there's uh, nothing nothing like a good old Air Force base. Oh, I was going to say that I can't tell you how many of my friends that I know today, former neighbors and friends, have I met. They would be stationed in here from somewhere else, as you might imagine, and they all married Topeka girls. I said, "Boy, <laughs> you guys really these Topeka girls were really, must have been the right thing." I said, "I my my good buddy that I talk to all the time and his wife when he was in the Air Force here at Forbes, and they've been married now well over fifty years, and uh, it's uh, very interesting to see what the guys that things that have taken place here." Well, uh, we could go on, gentlemen, but I, I want to thank you both. And this place is a destination to come. This yeah. place is, an, uh, you've got one more thing? Yeah, you've got, you've, I think you need to uh, cover, the one thing we probably need to talk about is the question always comes up, how do you finance this place? All right. And we are a 100% volunteer organization here, mm -hmm. except we Hire a cure. We have a board of directors, and we hire Kevin as a director, and an office manager Nelson here who works here. And we so we have two hired employees, but our gift shop workers and everybody, uh, everybody else is a volunteer. We're always looking for volunteers, and and how we finance the place is through our gift shop sales, uh, uh, memberships. Lot donations from people that just love us. They've come in and and those kind of things. So that's uh, you know that's but no government money. It's, we raise all the money ourselves, fundraisers, other things. But there's no government money. Have you ever been to the Nicholas Beasley uh, Museum in Marshall, Missouri? No, and I haven't heard of that. I'm one. familiar with it, but I've not been yet. Interesting. They they that little communities come together. They they raise all their money themselves too. Very, it's smaller than this, but very professionally put together, just like this place. So, if you're into aviation at all, or like histories, or like World War One and World War Two histories, this is the place to come. And uh, I take it you'll you've got many people here that are passionate about it too, and uh, they'll be glad to show you around. And uh, if you're a little kid, you'd love this place. If you've got uh, kids that are tough to get out, don't really like museums, bring them here. They'll like this. But I, uh, I want to thank both of you for doing this. This is Bob Ford with History, Mystery, and Lore, along with Kevin Durlow and Gene Howarder. We are keeping history alive so you'll pass it on. Thank you, gentlemen. If you enjoy these episodes and know others who would also 
please subscribe, gift a subscription to a fellow history buff, and share us so others know we're out there. For as little as $3 a month, go to bobfordshistory.com. You will receive a new episode on the 1st and 15th of each month, bonus articles written by guest writers, and history trivia at the end of each month. There's even a few free teaser episodes at bobfordshistory.com. We've got 40 more of these interviews already in the can. So please join us and help keep history alive so you and yours can pass it on. Thank you.